Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. This is Mike Edison, host of Art Senses and Seizures. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, please visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network, recording here live at South Bites at South by Southwest. We have had an incredible day so far. I'm Jack Inslee, executive producer at Heritage Radio Network, joined by the co-host and, and solo host here of Snacky Tunes, Dan Bresnitz. One half. One I f- half. I feel like... Uh, makes a hole today. I feel like Greg and I have not been in the same room to do Snacky Tunes in such a long time. It's too long. Too long. Now that we're covering both coasts, uh, we are very excited to be joined. I think you're our first doctor. Oh, really? You're, I think you're the first, the pleasure. Unless, right? Unless you count my dad, who's a doctor as well. Who's I, just, I don't count him. Oh, <laughs> Dr. Bresnitz, he's coming for you. But we have uh, Dr. James ha- ha- Hamblin. Did I get that right? You did. I stumbled a little. Um, do, you have a nick- do you have like a cool doctor nickname? Yeah, Dr. James Hamblin. That's pretty good. Whoa. Um, so, uh, James, for those who are not familiar with you or your work, who are you and what do you do? I'm a senior editor at The Atlantic magazine. Uh, I write uh, for the website and the print magazine, and I do a video series called If Our Bodies Could Talk at The Atlantic. And uh, I write about all health and science, but uh, that ends up coming back to food a lot, mm-hmm. which is something you know we didn't learn much about in medical school. But then once you start writing about public health, you see how all roads kind of converge there pretty often. So do you feel, I mean, unless you do like a nutritionist track, do you just not learn about food in medical school? You just do not. And is the standard diet of someone going through med school one to be, Ugh. it's like, it's like, it's bad, right? So medicine, medical education and medical training is a culture of intensity and deprivation. Like how... Mm-hmm. You got to go these 30-hour shifts with no sleep or else you are weak. You just <laughs> eat when you have time because you are putting the patients first. And, like, uh, it, it's, it's not about a holistic experience, like, for, for the doctors themselves. And then I think that sort of projects onto the patients. Um, and, you know, it, it's a very – it's a culture that prides itself on the amazing scientific advancements that we've made in – uh, the last half a century of what we're able to do. And it also sort of, with that, sort of ignores the simpler solutions. Like, is this person getting enough sleep? Is this person eating well? And we, we want to cut straight to, you know, what medication can we give that will interrupt what metabolic pathway to change them? Or what can we cut out? What can we image? And we, we err too heavily. I'm not anti-technology at all, but we err pretty heavily toward... I mean, how often do you see someone go, you just need to eat better? Well, how many times do you... I mean, never. Almost never. The thing is, you do... um, I mean, there's... You want to have a simpler solution, and that's extremely complicated. I mean, you really need to overhaul someone's life to get them to eat better. It's so, you know... So so I think a lot about that. How do you give people a concise 
messages about what it means to eat better right. in a responsible way that's not going to drive them to lead a joyless life where they can never or, or, or to try to do some regimen that they can never actually attain you know yeah. um, because it's not prescriptive right it's right it has to fit to your culture it has to fit to your social life it has to fit to your financial status has to fit to your tastes and then also yeah whatever metabolic issues you're dealing with so let's talk about if our bodies could talk for those who are not familiar with what it is what is it oh uh it's just a video series that is uh, reporting on all kinds of health issues. We just had the president on the show. It was uh, he is he is making his rounds. Yeah, I mean, if he'll come on our show, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, no, uh, we got to talk about precision, the Precision Medicine Initiative, which is all about uploading genomes to the cloud and and doing very precise. Uh, interventions for people. So we do stuff from that to, you know, teaching how to get uh, better lunches in public schools or looking at stuff like that. And then uh, also just lifestyle PSAs like to... Um, did he record some PSAs for you? Uh, did he record PSAs? Yeah. No, no. We, we talked about serious stuff. I only got like 10 minutes. Hey, it. that's 10 more minutes than most people will have. That's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was very cool. Um, so, so what type of approach do you bring to your reporting and to your coverage for food? I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely new technology. It's definitely, you know, video, it's internet, it's digital, which has been around for a minute. But like, what are you seeing? Like, what type of stories are, can you tell that haven't been told before? Mm. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of it in what we do in magazine writing is, uh, analysis and, and synthesis and, uh, the nice thing about video being still a newer technology is you can take stories. You're just telling stories in a different way by sh actually showing things that people have only written about before. And you capture these real moments. So we started off doing it scripted, and then we ended up doing, doing it totally improvised so that we could have, you know, real moments uh, within it. And, and that's something you're just never going to capture in writing. Like, the very act of writing is this deliberate, thought-out process. Right. And you've said, you know, this person has sat there and thought about this. But, you know, like you capture in podcasts, you can right. feel yeah. like that moment was clearly organic and just off it, the cuff. It's, and it's a lot of show. I mean, it's like the, the real show-not-tell is really a lot of show and video. Yeah. Sometimes there's videos where I just I, I say nothing. I just show the whole time. There's literally no telling. Yeah. That's, it's, you know, that's what I really love about your podcast, about your videos. Just no telling, all showing. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work for podcasts. No. It's just radio. We did an hour Science. of showing that was probably our worst performing. Oh, did you? It was, it was awful. Mm. Um, so as you, so with this visual medium, like what, what was the story that you first told? Like what was the first thing that you did where you're like, okay, this is all sort of coming together. This is like really like the perfect like, uh, like Venn diagram of... Uh, you know, internet, video, and then food. Oh. Um, I mean, the first stuff that we did was was not at all food. It was kind of, uh, three years ago, The Atlantic decided it was going to start doing original video content sure. and started uh, doing kind of talking head things where we could just take some editors who know a lot about stuff and have them talk in front of a camera uh, because we had kind of two people in our video department. Um, and then as we grew that out, we started to do more and more reported stories going out in the world, meeting a lot of people. And um, I mean, I personally have been f just learning that medium uh, as I go. And the, the best thing that uh, 
I think we've done in food was a profile of Beyond Meat. For, and, for protein? Um, yeah, yeah. Like cricket so they, powder and things like that? Um, or? We talked to a cricket powder guy briefly during it. Have you ever had cricket powder? I bread? had cricket powder granola bars. Mm. Um, it's, it's not... It's not bad. No, it's fine. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's like there's a ton of crickets and people need protein and they have protein. Oh, they do. And I mean, you can start your own cricket farm real easily. And, and then you're a Would cool you, farmer. Uh, this, I, you get to wear overalls. My son's growing our cricket flower. Yeah, yeah. This is artisanal cricket flower. Your fr- friends dig it. But it, I mean, you, we have to think of another solution for how to provide protein for the planet and so uh that was fun to think about what else i mean i know cricket powder and i think that's sort of like the the most and that's still technically depending on your definition of of animal i mean that's still like a, a living creature like what else did they talk about or what else did you talk about and that goes beyond protein because crickets still have a i don't know if they have, i mean a heartbeat or a pulse whatever you want to you know like, what, yeah. what else did you talk about? Was it, like, seaweed or, like, algae and things like that? Um, yeah, we didn't get into those, but um, this uh, company that we kind of centered the piece on is called Beyond Meat. They're based in L.A. They do uh, pea-based protein products. And what I think there is interesting is their, their angle, and it's not unique uh, to them, is trying to really replicate the meat experience and to not use the word vegan and not be trying to uh, like trying to reach people who just want meat, and then making it cheaper, tastier, uh, have a longer shelf life. You just have to beat them, beat meat itself on all the points that people like it for, because environmentalism and conscientiousness are just not going to change people's minds. At least that's what that's the premise they're operating under. I, mean, I, I get that. I mean, is that what you find? a lot about this reporting is that it's not so much of just like, you're not trying to change point of views, it's trying to show them a different opinion, a different perspective. Like how much, how much yeah. do you think, how much do you think reporting now with so much of like, well, I can easily find five arguments against what you just said. It's just being like, here, here's what we know. And here's what we're showing with you. Um, Especially I- when anyone can write in the comment section and be like, you're, you're wrong with no, with no real backup. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, what I'm more interested in is wading through all those messages and trying to highlight the ones that seem to be right and um, kind of tell the stories that have led me to believe that those approaches seem to have merit. Or they at least, you know, challenge a widely held belief or they uh, are questioning people in positions of power, all these things. Or just getting people to think about, like, for me, the idea with meat is... That if people, most people think they need to go vegan or they can continue eating meat, you know, every single day. And the real advances seem like they're going to come from people just slightly cutting back, slightly knowing that what they're doing might be having some impact on the environment. If you're on the fence, maybe don't eat as much meat that day. It's interesting. Sorry, real quick. Like, in, in terms of media, this is the kind of topic that you wouldn't really be able to tackle with a short online video, maybe, you know, yeah. a few years ago. It's, it's interesting, the choice of medium, to kind of have that sort of discussion to a wider audience, whereas you would have to read books on this 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I like video because, like I was saying, the spontaneity, the real moments that you get with people, and, uh, and that, that constriction, that time constriction, where you know you're going to have three, or five, three to five minutes kind of, uh, it, it helps you really prioritize like what are the 
what are the best moments in this whole story and let's get right to them and then right. get out. I mean, have you, for this type of stuff, once you make your piece, how do you share it? I mean, I know you put it up on The Atlantic, but, like, what have you found that's effective in cutting through? I mean, there's so much, there's so many people writing about food and similar topics. How do you get yours to rise through, through like, the crowd? Um, the, that's uh, a huge question. We could get into monetizing internet video if you wanted to. I don't, that's probably too niche, but like... No, I mean, but I mean, you know, it's, I mean, in many ways, it's, it is a business. I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. In, in many ways, it's like, listen, I think you're saying great stuff. I think you're that. But if the Atlantic goes back and go, you're constantly in the red, we don't see the value of that. So how do you, I mean, what's the balance of that? You know, is it, is it, do you find that you have to pick stories that you know are going to perform well? Is it like clickbait, you know, or is it like we're just going to stick to a strong narrative and our editor, you know, the people overseeing us support us? Yeah, yeah. We do not feel a lot of pressure to uh, generate clicks. Uh, and we're, we're, we're really fortunate to have a, a big and uh, respected platform and like we, I mean, we just won the ASME for National Magazine of the Year. Congratulations! Not, not like bragging, but that that has value in you, it. I'm so, so tired of people winning awards and then being like, "We don't want to brag." It's like, "Did you do good work?" Yes. Were you recognized for it? It's like, brag yeah, away. yeah, okay. We'll brag for you. I, hey, congratulations so on say, that ASME. Congratulations. It comes back in different ways. Sure. So right. it comes back in different ways, and and uh, that's more what I'm striving for. And then like it, it's. Ideally, year over year, you're seeing growth in audience, and that should right. correlate with the quality of work that you're doing, but we really don't get too granular about it. But yeah, the interesting thing is, so when you do put something on theatlantic.com, the way it is monetized now is by having a commercial at the beginning, a pre-roll. Pre-roll, ad. yeah. Um, and I do think that is becoming obsolete, especially as stuff like Facebook really trains people that you don't need to wait through pre-roll. Like, we give you videos immediately, and you right. scroll right down, and right. so why would you ever click away to a URL and sit through a 30-second... Right. And then, and then, yeah, that does have to, like, you have to up your game. You have to be, like, listen, to, hey, the president is going to talk about real important science here, so you should click away and sit through a 30-second ad to see it. So, um, that, so that challenges you. I mean, so is it, it's more competitive, and not just from a content point of view, but from a monetization point of view. Like, how is that, is that sculpting where you're doing? Like, is it making you go, like, we got to dig even deeper, we got to go even harder to the paint? I think, yeah. When, so, like, when we first started and uh, we are doing those talking heads, you could get people more easily to go to a website, sit through an ad, and then watch someone just have a, you know, it was kind of more, it was less formal. The whole internet was like that. We were doing more blogging. It was more, you were, it was fine to go just, oh, here's some random person's thoughts, and they didn't really take time to copy edit, and they didn't really go talk to anybody about this. They just clicked publish. And and that was happening all over. And, and now, I mean, not just, like, uh, every site of formal publications have kind of upped their game and people have raised their expectations for what they're going to see when they do leave their social media feed. Yeah, I mean, but have you used it to your benefit? I mean, are you now finding ways, I don't want to say to like hack Facebook, but are you finding ways to work within those larger platforms, so the Instagrams, the Twitters, and things like that, that are saying like, okay, we figured a way to use their system to help us report better, get our story out. Yeah. Well, first I would say that I love and respect Facebook and I... Uh, Shout out to the Zuck. Yeah. <laughs> love you. Don't ever think they're doing down. great work. <laughs> Please don't come for us. <laughs> um, I know we're constantly figuring that out. I mean, that, that, that gets to the question of, um, you know, native advertising of the sort or internal 
monetization methods like is very accepted with podcasts. It's very accepted to say, oh, we're going to go to commercial now, and this is brought to you by Squarespace and Audible. And, yeah, seriously. And everything. And it's weirdly not accepted in videos. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> for, for you to see a, a journalist, that, that same journalist who could have been on a podcast doing a commercial to, to on video say, and, and now I'm going to stop for a moment and t- right. th- th- I think that would really upset people. And I don't know what the future is. There's of no is. skip this feature on a podcast no. either. Yeah. Right, like after your five seconds. No, no. And video is, I mean, listen, we got a couple mics in a room and a hand in a recorder. We got a show, but like the video, I mean, there's serious cost with the content that you're doing. Sure. And, you know, but yeah, I don't know why, I don't know why the video has, I mean, but in the same way people freaked out when you started to be able to fast forward through commercials. But then how do you avoid, especially with you doing reporting, you know, you can't just do like organic product placement. No, we certainly don't want to do that. I mean, what I want is to be able to have a way to get onto YouTube and Facebook native that is also monetizable. And I think a lot of people want that, but also is as journalistically removed from any affiliation to any sponsor Mm -hmm. as possible. And that's the huge challenge before, not just us all internet media. I mean, that's a real separation. I mean, you see it now with like advertorial type of stuff where it's like sort of reporting, but it's more like a hidden ad. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with you being the Atlantic, that's... That's a real oh, separation of church and state. Yeah, yeah. We we won't mess with that, but I, 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 there is possibly a future where you're able to have a journalist in a, in a video. I mean, if, if this is the what the platform dictates, where you have to say this is sponsored. And we did briefly. We did a brief series uh, with Aetna, and at the end I said this was brought to you by Aetna. Yeah. And, but that, and that was it. But I didn't do anything like might happen on a podcast where people are saying Aetna is a great insurance company and they're really, you know, and I use them all the time and they give me all my insurance. You know, nothing yeah. like that. And also that's not the case. That's yeah. just a hypothetical example. A hypothetical example of yeah. the great, One great healthcare company. network yeah, of Aetna. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, joining us well, hello. Hello. How are you, Helen? I, I How- think I'm on. Am I on? Yes. Let's see. Hey, how's it going? Uh, joining us is uh, Helen Rosner, Futures Editor at Eater. Executive Editor. I'm sorry, Executive Editor now. I'm extremely fancy. My apologies. Congratulations on that. Uh, James, we are just talking uh, about modern reporting and the rise of the advertorial and about how that is tougher to suss out, but then also how do you pay for things when you know people can skip through, click through, not look at any of the advertising, but still keep making robust content. Well, how are we defining advertorial? Um, we are defining advertorial as a sponsor coming in and saying, you're going to write about, I don't know, uh, salads, and I'm Wendy's, and one of the best salads you're going to write about is our summer salads. So the, the, cool like thing, the, the cool thing is that that's not an advertorial. That's just an ad. I mean, advertorial is a fake concept. There's no such thing as advertorial. There are ads, and there's journalism. Right. Okay. Yeah, we wouldn't do anything like what you're describing. There's a question, though, in video of when you have something that um, an, an advertiser would say, we want ads on X subject matter. Sure. Um, and and then um, it's some, some journalistic outlets will say, okay, we will do coverage of, say, food. Mm-hmm. And it will be sponsored by this. But the journalists are not informed by which... 
advertising. No, of course. I yeah. mean, you know, there's always going to be road blocking and ads and things like that, especially with, you know, the way that you pay for things. But, I mean, I know, I mean, there's a pretty still a good separation of church and state, I would say, correct? I hope so. I mean, I think that the places that take the journalism that they do seriously sure. maintain that. The, the sadder reality is that there are a lot of publications that consider themselves vehicles for advertising first, and mm. they use the journalism to have something to sell ads around, as opposed to vehicles for journalism that use the advertising to support that work. Sure. I mean, do you... F- I mean, I think one of the things that we have seen is that there are so many websites about food, about current medical issues and things like that, that are just willing to be like, we don't... We have don't have ethics. There's no one who is actually watching us. There's no watchdog group because there's so much. And then you have a couple of Star Wars in the industry, like Eater or the Atlantic. And how do you... How do you report? How do you say, like, hey, we're actually... Without being like, you're a liar, we're not. I, I mean... I, sometimes I wish I could just say you're a liar. <laughs> hey, listen. Just, <laughs> um, uh, you know, in the, in the case of Eater, which is, is an interesting case because Eater began as an outsider publication, right? Eater began right. about 10 years ago as a, uh, effectively a restaurant gossip blog. And over the course of its very long life has evolved into what is now part of the food journalism establishment. And in the course of that evolution, Eater had to contend with these questions of ethics and access. And now we have a, an actual concrete ethics statement that's on Eater's website. And, you know, it's written in, you know, uh, words that are as indelible as you can be when something is published only digitally. Sure. And we regularly remind all of our editors and all of our contributors of what our ethical obligations and limitations are. James, same thing. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. We're we're really fortunate to have been around for 150 years and have a lot of credibility to stand on uh, in that realm. So, people, I think people's default expectation is that we are, are uh, have a strong wall, and, and it's it's true that we we do. So, I mean, you could spend your whole career kind of illuminating. Uh, the problems within the industry, not just yeah. that, but in within medical and nutrition research, sure. all the conflicts of interest that, that everyone has, and uh, it, it's it, and just helping your readers to show how that process works, so that in the future they can vet articles as they come to them. I think is a helpful service. Yeah. I think the other thing that the internet, in particular, has given rise to is the fact that. Um, readers' relationships are no longer with publications in mm. quite the same way that they used to be. Um, maybe you have a, a, an, a relationship with a print publication, but when it comes to a digital product, more often readers tend to have relationships with specific writers and specific bylines. Really? And media is an industry that's built on job hopping. You know, a, a, it used to be the case that you signed on as an assistant editor at The New Yorker and you worked there for 70 years and you died at your desk. Mm. But now people... Mm, that classic <laughs> tale as old as time. And they never <laughs> remove you from the building. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Even once they move downtown to the World Trade Center. But, I think um, they have a, a cemetery in the basement of the Times where they just they put all the writers just in there. roll all the old reporters. Yeah. But I think, you know, I mean, to James's point, like, ethics are carried by the integrity of a publication, but they're also carried by the integrity of a writer. And you're now, as a writer, having so much more direct interaction with with the people who read you. You have your 
Twitter account, your other social media presences, you appear on panels, you appear on podcasts. And if people can trust you, then they will trust the words that you say. And I think it's very easy to read something once you achieve a certain level of cynical jadedness and say, oh man, this, this writer sucks. Like This is a bullshit writer who took a comp and decided to write about how great something was versus this is a writer who I trust and whose opinions are nuanced and who clearly has expertise in their field. I mean, the idea of anonymity in, in food reporting, I mean, it used to be like, you know, people did not know what you looked like, you know, the idea of like a food writer or any sort of writer or anything like that was like, it's very rare what you knew except for maybe some like, you know, black and white graphite illustration. But now it's like, I mean, James, you're in your videos. I mean, how they can find your photo, things like that. Do you think that that has shifted in what you're reporting, knowing that people like know who you are, can find not just what you look like, but other information about you and like can find everything you've ever done can be like can like i mean because the internet the inter, the internet never forgets i mean they can go back and be like listen i like the story you did now but i remember when you like when you had that hack piece or you messed up or you got it wrong four years ago we're like politicians you yeah know? Like, no it's true i mean it's 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 absolutely true do you think that that has changed i mean have people gotten you know i mean except for maybe like the late great josh rozarski like do you think people have gotten like more and more cautious because they're afraid that like they might get on the wrong side of history yes i i think if you're smart um uh, you know I was, we're we're sitting at south by southwest and all anyone is talking about is like personal branding and your personal social sure so i feel like i've had many conversations over the last couple of days about what young journalists and aspiring journalists ought to be thinking about with regards to who they sell themselves as to a broad readership and to potential employers and i don't think that you have to be locked up, right? I don't think that you have to be incredibly circumspect and pretend that you're running for president and never tell anybody anything that could remotely be construed as negative. You're not in interesting. Years. Cons- con- yeah. Consistently a lifetime of reporting off the record. Right. But, but I do think that if you're not considering how you appear to your audience as an individual, sure. then you're failing at one of the emerging essential tenets of being a journalist in the modern age. But you're, bro- you're both fairly, fairly candid on, on Twitter, yeah. you know, I think. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm crazy. I mean, I'm an asshole. So do, Twitter, do but... you ever have those, like... <laughs> I mean, you guys, I, mean I, I have to agree, like, <laughs> yeah. James, do you have a moment where you're like, maybe I should not or like, do this? Or, like, how many deleted <laughs> tweets do, do we not see? Uh, I, meh, I, no, I, I mean... Uh, I, I feel like as long as you're being self-deprecating and punching up with your humor, there's not... Yeah. Like, yeah. humor itself, I, I hate the idea when people think that you need to be serious to be respected. Um, I think that's the great challenge, is trying to weave in humor and um, approachability into high-minded ideas and marry the two. I mean, that, that's what I'm constantly trying to... Like, I, I take no joy in stories that are just totally dead serious the whole way through. I... Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I totally agree with that. And I think particularly in the kind of work that James does, but also to a degree in the kind of restaurant and general food coverage stuff that I do, well, we, the two of us serve our readers. We don't, sure. serve, we don't serve chefs. We don't serve restaurants. We don't serve the ag industry. We don't serve the government. Do you serve your, public, your publications, though, as well? Honestly, I mean, I believe in my readers more than I believe in my publication. You're bringing your readers to that publication. Well, not so much that, but like if if my look, I love my job. I think Eater's a fantastic place to work, sure. and I think in the landscape of food publications, and I'm not just saying this because I work there. I think it's a place with extraordinary integrity and a place with probably the most respect for actual journalism in the food space. Um, but if the publication suddenly took a turn and 
I felt like we were sacrificing what our readers expected to get from us for the sake of ad dollars or a different editorial strategy, I'd be at the door. I don't have an Eater tattoo on my arm. Yeah. Like, I'm, I, I love working at Eater and I value it, but I'm a journalist first, not an Eater employee. Do you find, I mean, so even though it's modern food reporting and, thing, and all of the different ways you can communicate people and feels, sometimes feels very fast and loose and like not well-researched, like, I mean, it's still journalism at the end of the day. Like, not, has, has much really changed except for the way that people can get the information? Yeah. I mean, everybody has their own publishing platform. I don't, you know, I wouldn't be the first to suggest that social media is at the root of all this, but that everybody is sharing, like, the way that you come to what you come to is really curated and really biased, and you're only getting things that tend to already affirm that if you believe that 50% of the population is suffering from mental fogginess due to gluten sensitivity, then you are going to find and read almost exclusively articles that support that and you're gonna and then you you don't even like <laughs> you don't even you don't even come to the, the counter perspectives but do you think it's the weight of having and i and i know what you're saying about you're a journalist first but isn't it somewhat having the weight of saying like i'm saying this via eater and eater signing off on this i'm saying this via the atlantic which gives more weight instead of being like okay i've i'm like an anti-gluten person that has 30 or even 300,000 followers on my Instagram feed or my Tumblr feed, but I'm alone. Like, no one's fact-checking me. I mean, you have a code of ethics. Yeah. So, so isn't being part of that giving some credibility, especially in a world where I, I can build up readers, I can become a talking head, I mean, you know, I can go on these publications, but there's no validity to what I'm saying. Absolutely. I mean, no, I think, I think it's like the, the imprimatur of a publication lends weight to anything. You know? Sure. And, and so... In the old days when there wasn't an internet and, um, you know, people could still buy their own printing presses. I'm sorry, pre-internet? I don't quite understand. So um, humans before they were humans were this earlier evolutionary... No, um, you, could, you could buy your own printing press, right? Like, that, that would be, that's such a baller move, by the way. It would be. And I, yeah. think, I mean, there's yeah. some, like, cheesy Voltaire quote that or something that I remember being really inspired by when I was, like, 16, and it's, you know, you can say whatever you want on your own printing press. It's this idea that oh, so nobody good. has an obligation to amplify you, um, but that's what free speech is, right? Like, you can go out and say it yourself, but what happens at a place like The Atlantic or a place like Eater or, or a place, uh, you know, any publication that over, over its life has built up a degree of respect and trust in its readership is you rely on the publication to hire writers and to approach stories that are ultimately in the interest of that publication's mandate. And you trust sure. the publication to have a mandate that is in the best interest of society. Um, that's not always the case. I mean, there are publications that are, like, blisteringly conservative or full of hate or, you know, that can absolutely hurt the world, and there are probably liberal publications that are totally terrible, but um, their readers trust the, the masthead, and they trust the name over the door. Right. So, yeah, it, it helps. Um, have you gotten... I mean, have you, have you gone after a story... Um, something that was new, something that you you know couldn't have been done before, and it was because you had the backing of your publisher that allowed you to get access, allowed you to tell a story and share it um, that you that you wouldn't have maybe a few years ago. I mean, you know, Eater has access to... You say I'm from Eater, you can get access to any chef. 
any story. Or you immediately get the door shut in your face. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's it's a platform, right? It, it gives you resources. It gives you access. If you're a journalist who no one has heard of, they might care. I mean, you know, if Vanity Fair comes calling, celebrities are going to say yes, regardless oh, yeah. of who the person is writing the story. But that's the power of an institution, right? You can't. Right. I can't just tomorrow morning open up a magazine, even if I'm funded to hundreds of millions of dollars, and just sort of snap my fingers and make things happen. You have to over time build up trust so let's talk about what's actually being reported these days and i mean i've seen a shift in like the stories being told and because there are so many stories coming out how do you look to tell something new and what do you feel are the stories you have to tell to sort of get attraction because you know in a way i mean it's a business in the way that we talked about the pre-rolls and the views of that you still need people to read what you're writing about so where do you find these new stories and what are you reporting on I, I mean, I, I'm reporting on a marriage of what I what interests me, what I think is important, and what I think I can tell in an interesting way, a story I think I can tell in an interesting way. So those are probably the three things that I mostly, most consider. And I think about the analytics at a year-over-year level, um, and, and we'd evaluate if that, you know, the audience was going down, then we should change our trajectory. But I'm really not thinking at an individual story level how many people are going to read this and um, should, is it worth doing because people won't read it. That's the fortunate thing about having a platform like The Atlantic. People will read it. And some things go a lot farther in reach than others. And um, But uh, we, we have a built-in readership. So Well, let me rephrase that. What stories personally are you going after that you felt you couldn't have gone after a few years ago? Like, because of the platform? Or because of the platform, because of, of, of what people' interests are shifting. Like, what, because of people are just, I mean, their hunger for this type of appetite. And, like, what are you seeing that people want to read about? And what do you go, and, like, how are you approaching telling that, those stories? Well, I think um, when you start feeding your audience exactly what they're asking for, you enter into a feedback loop that winds up hurting everyone. Sure. And you're going to just sort of end up with nothing but listicles of kittens sitting on top of cupcakes and your traffic's going to be through the roof but you're not contributing to the journalistic dialogue um so what i think has been a, a really important kind of course correction in the digital media landscape is that people used to be slaves to the analytics you used to say this brought in a lot of traffic let's do more exactly like this and you wind up moving towards that kind of kitten cupcake listicle territory now i think the pendulum is swinging back to people understanding the importance of journalism as a public service and as a form of, you know, populist advocacy and as a check against giant companies and giant government interests and marketed packaged goods. And so you can use the analytics not to inform what your stories are, but how to better tell the stories you think are important so that your readers will respond to them. I, I think... I'm sorry. Yeah, no, please. No, I, I'm just going off what you're saying. I think that that what has, if you're talking about what we've been allowed to do by the state of media that has changed over the last two years, it is that um, people have only come to appreciate our work more in a landscape where there are so many startups that are just like hiring people right out of college right. to like create content, which is, is such a crazy phrase. And and but that that makes this commodity market of aggregation and nonsense and listicles just it's it's been flooded. And it's so easy to do and there are not as many places that are able to do 
real journalism. And so um, we've been f- found our market advantage. Like when we do do things that are slightly more toward the commodity realm, uh, which we barely even do anymore, but it, they don't they they don't break out. They're they're reach they're hitting that flooded market. So our stuff stands out more. Our longer in depth stuff is only more reported because people are sick of. Given, given what you both said, though, how do you measure success then? I mean, I, I hate that I'm going to say what I'm about to say, but serious journalism, particularly serious long lead journalism that touches on important or difficult topics, is basically a prestige product now. It's not the backbone of the system the way that it used to be in terms of bringing in money, though certainly there are some stories that wind up creating a lot of revenue, and it's not what it used to be in terms of bringing in the eyeballs, though certainly there are some stories that take off like crazy. Um, I don't know. How do you measure success? You can measure success and impact. You know, there are stories that people write that get laws changed, that get people released from jail. You You can measure it in terms of buzz in general, you can measure it in terms of awards that you win, but I I also think that ultimately important, good, rigorous journalism is its own reward. Um, Those are stories that have inherent value even if they're not reaching 7 million eyeballs because the, the very act of being a journalist asking your source a question, particularly if it's something challenging, sure. is something that helps them understand that they're being scrutinized. And it, it maintains the balance in the system. So to go back to, James, what you said, and based off that, I mean, you know, is the definition of quote-unquote like real journalism, has that shifted because there's just so much, I mean, you know, I mean, you look at like, a, like BuzzFeed is the perfect example of they have their long lead investigative Reporting like some of like the most interesting stuff, and then cats, you know, cats and things like that. But like, you know, are they destroying the distinction? Like, can you look at the whole thing and say, well, this is all real journalism, or like part of what we do is real journalism, part of what we do is just traffic drivers? I mean, you know, Eater is a good example as well. It's like, I mean, how much when you do the long leads versus the heat maps? I mean, the heat maps those come out. I'm sure those generate a ton of traffic for you, right? Yeah, they pay the rent. They pay the, the rent, right? Leads. They yeah. pay the rent, but like. I mean, is that not real journalism, or has it shifted because of what you're able to do in in modern reporting has changed? Uh, that question of the, the definition of journalism right now it clearly does not need to be limited to uh, deep investigative reported stories, but it seems also that it clearly does not include uh, just aggregated pictures of cats. Um, so, like, but like so really important, really important cats who are like changing the world. I mean, one they, pot at a time. Well, so there's also the idea of a magazine, which um, the Atlantic has traditionally had uh, poems and fiction and things that people would not consider journalism. But in the course of the experience of holding a magazine, they were part of it. And um, if there could potentially be an argument that the um, the fun listicle is just a, a sidebar in the magazine that is the, the website that is this rich bouquet of things. And of people do enjoy cats, and they're just part of it. But it, then when every single thing is its own URL, it's easy to say that, oh, that I mean, was this thing that stood I mean, look at, look at New York Magazine. I mean, New York Magazine had, you know, in the front that was at the four parties, and the back was, like, the, 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 the index of, like, what's cool, the high-low factor. Like, I would equally buy New York Magazine... To see that, but then also get all of the the, uh, the articles inside, but I would consider the whole thing one package. I mean, I think journalism and journalists are 
weird and fluid words, right? You, yeah. we, can, we can twist them to mean whatever we want them to mean. But ultimately, to me, what they've evolved into um, as sort of journalism as a subset within you know, hashtag content is a, a journalist is a person who subscribes to a certain set of ethics. And I think regardless of whether you're doing something that's controversial and investigative or you're doing an off-the-cuff semi-snarky piece about the latest like restaurant shit show there's there's an aspect of responsibility you know you understand libel you understand the role of the press you understand what your position is within the ecosystem of subject writer and reader and there are a lot of people who probably don't consider those ethics or don't consider themselves as being part of an industry or an edifice that has this history of reader service and of being advocates and of being you know mayflies and, and, and just sort of making sure everybody is accountable. Um, that's not to say that's that's bad. I mean, journalists are not on a pillar above other forms of writers. But sure. I but I think that uh, saying you're a journalist implies to me that you participate in a certain ethical and responsible environment when you write. Well, yeah. yeah. I think that you appreciate the implications of the shorter, snarky piece that you're doing. You know, even in, like other people might not see that. Say, yeah, not to keep coming, come back to the gluten sensitivity example, but if you write some little piece of some comic or or some piece of fiction that touches on that, and you realize as a journalist that, that knows how to responsibly report things and knows what interested parties will think what of that thing that you're making, then y- you are just using alternate form to similarly be responsible and um, send yeah. messages to the I public. Mean, in exactly the same way that comedies could be just as socially responsible. Or, right, or, like all in the family yeah. dealt with issues in, in the comedic way before that. I mean, is, do you find that like this yeah. type of journalism is now allowing you to deal with stuff that maybe the more traditional. I mean, Atlantic's a perfect example, right? I mean, here's a comparison of modern reporting, video website, you know, things like that, versus, you know, the, the, the flagship, which is the physical magazine. Are yeah. you able to tack, to go after stories that, nor, that would not fit within the magazine? Or at least, and it, I know it's different mediums, but like at least topics that would not fit within the magazine. Uh, no, I, I think any topic that we would cover on the web, we could cover in the magazine. There's a different execution. There's sure. a urgency and a casualness that is born of the fact that we are right. That it was clearly you can see a timestamp. You know the thing just happened, and this was just published. Whereas if it, if you took the time to print it into a magazine and deliver it to someone's door, it should be more polished. It should <laughs> it shouldn't feel like you just dashed it off? Even if you so like I enjoy reading that kind of writing. Of course, definitely, but. So it's more, it's just in the, the execution of uh, a little bit of throat clearing goes into the very fact of printing something onto a page and handing it to a person and asking for money in return. Something I wanted to just touch on was um, kind of, I, I was just reminded by something you said, Helen, of the First We Feast article about the problems. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm wondering. For, for those uh, in yeah. a show moment, because, <laughs> and I will have to tell it, there was an eye roll here. Yes, yes. And wh- like, actually, why? Yeah, tell me. W- what the eye roll means um, and what your reaction kind of was because I know for us at Heritage it was just like all anybody talked about for a full week. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it was it was an incredibly... As a, as a journalist and as a food writer and as someone who considers 
the media world, like my sports team, it's yeah. like my the most fascinating thing in the world to me. I thought um, I think it's never something I don't welcome to see someone turning a lens back on the media world. Like I, I love it when someone is like, here's what sucks about food journalism or here's right. what sucks about whatever. I mean, it's terrific to, to analyze what we're doing and to always strive to be better. Um, the first refuse piece was a great conversation starter. And I, I think um, the, the main motivation that I have for that eye roll is just that what I was expecting while I was reading this was that at the end there would be a turn and then, you know, the editor-in-chief, Christian Berger, who wrote the piece, who's a great, great dude and Shout a really Chris. phenomenal Phenomenal man. Too. Yep. Um, I was expecting a hard turn, which was, and this is why now at First We Feast we are making the following decisions to do X, no, Y, I, and Z. I agree, yeah. And that didn't happen. I agree. And, and so to that end, what I found strange about the piece, like what I would have done differently like i'm sorry chris you didn't ask for my opinion but is um well that's that's a question of considering the audience because that was a very very inside baseball conversation and i think readers ought to know more about the media that they're consuming but first we feast isn't a media site it's not written for other food writers it's written for people who are interested in the world of food and chef and celebrities and like rap stars eating stoner food and um and so i wasn't really sure what this contributed to that conversation. I thought it was something that all of us would be super into and and I wanted Chris to write it to all of us. Like two inside baseball? Not that it's two inside baseball, not that it should have been secretive, but but when you tell your readers what's wrong with the industry that they have chosen to invest in. Like, mm. when you're telling your readers, hey, listen, you love reading food websites. Here's 12 reasons why they're totally dropping the ball. I think your responsibility as an editor is to then immediately, like, within the same article, say, and that's why we are making this series sure. of extraordinarily concrete changes to not do that anymore. We're starting to see change. We've yeah. recognized the issue as a part of the problem. Here's the sea change, and we're going to weather, yeah. you know, as, as that as the company, as yeah. the one who's calling, right. I've called BS on the in- industry. Yeah. We're raising a flag. It's like you got to either say that, but to say that, well, we're just going to keep doing it, right. just so you know. And I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure that the thinking about and writing that article spurred Chris to make a lot of subtle changes to the way that things are working at First We Feast. But if you think about the history of that kind of thing being published in non-trade media, like if the New York Times is going to publish something talking about what's wrong with newspapers, or if the Atlantic is going to publish something talking about what's wrong with general interest magazines, usually it's an editor's letter that contains a turn to the reader that explains why we're pulling back the curtain on our process, which we don't generally cover. Like First We Feast doesn't cover food media in that analytical way that it did in that article, so sure. so yeah. you owe something to your readers to justify why you're making. Because then you're just turn. you're just pointing fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I want to thank you both. We could keep going, keep going and going and going, but I want to make sure that we have enough time for you guys to tell where people that can find you on the internet. If you want them to find, I mean, they could find you. We don't need to tell them, but uh, oh, visit theatlantic.com. Okay. And the name of the the website again is theatlantic.com. No, your stuff. Uh, my video series is called If Our Bodies Could Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And congratulations me. on all the awards. Oh, thanks. And you can find uh, all of my stuff, though. Mostly I edit, not write, um, at eater.com. Um, and you can listen to my podcast, The Eater Upsell, Ooh. for more of my rambly thoughts. Shout and out to podcasts. Podcasts are great, man. Everyone should do one. Awesome. Well, thank you both for stopping by. Yes, thank you all for listening as well. And we're huge fans of both of you, so 
Really, thanks for doing this panel. Um, you can listen to this and all other Heritage Radio Network programs on the website, heritageradionetwork.org, and iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for tuning in, and see you next time. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>